This is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. First up, we have Swami on balloon tamponade and upper GI bleeds, which for some of us is a halo procedure. Balloon tamponade saves lives, so listen up. But before we get into that, tickets for online podcast camp go on sale August 31st at podcastcamp.org. This is the only three-day in-depth medical education podcast production course for podcasters at any stage of their podcasting career. I teach you everything from scripting to interview skills to voice editing to sound design to hosting and posting. My detailed book on medical podcast production is included, and by the end of the three days, you'll have a professional-level podcast done. If you're referred from a friend who's been to the podcast camp before, you get a 15% discount. Details are all at podcastcamp.org. Okay, here's Swami on Balloon Tamponade. There are a handful of procedures that are truly life-saving that we have to be comfortable doing. Many of these, unfortunately, we don't do very often, and so we're not always 100% comfortable with them. There are procedures like intubation and chest tube placement that we do fairly often, and we are very good at doing. But then there are those like cricothyroidotomy or pericardiocentesis, transvenous pacemaker, or GI balloon tamponade. And these are procedures that we don't do as much, but we have to be ready to do them when the patient comes in who needs that procedure done. I want to talk about the last one that I mentioned, balloon tamponade. In the 17 years I've been in practice, I've done maybe half a dozen balloon tamponade placements, and I haven't done one in the last three years. A good topic for us to really get into and review. The ins and outs of the procedure itself is very visual, and there are some great videos that we will drop in the show notes to go to to really learn how to place the tube. What I want to focus on are three points. One is how to be prepared to place that tube in advance of the patient coming in. Two, what to do in preparation when the patient comes in. And then finally, really understanding when to pull the trigger to place the tube. Because this is an uncommon procedure, we need to do a lot of work asynchronously when the patient's not there to be comfortable with placement. The best way to do this is to set up a deliberate practice schedule. I drill myself on this procedure every three to four months. It means watching the videos that are really high quality on how to place it, looking at the list of all the equipment that's needed in order to do this, and really honing my ability to do those ins and outs. Mental preparation is going to be extremely valuable here as well. In addition to that deliberate practice, we can also make ourselves more ready to do this procedure if we really know the equipment well and where it lives in our emergency department. That means knowing, do you have a Blakemore tube or a Linton or a Minnesota? Because the placement of each of these is slightly different. And then also knowing where all of the other equipment that's needed for placement lives. Do you know exactly where the three-way stopcocks are, the 60cc syringe, the manometer that's needed to really gauge whether you've inflated the balloons properly? Ideally, what you would do is put together a kit for balloon tamponade for your department, gathering all of the different equipment, tying it into one bundle so that people can say, I need to perform balloon tamponade. I'm going to go grab the kit that has all of the equipment I could possibly need in it, and then I'm ready to go. 
If you don't have one of these in your department, I strongly recommend that you become the person who does this. Put this kit together for your department. There's no better way to learn the ins and outs of a procedure than doing a project like this. Let's move to point number two, which is being ready to do this procedure when the patient's actually in your department. And I would say that anybody with a moderate to severe GI bleed, you should be ready to place a balloon tamponade. That means getting your airway equipment, because it's almost impossible to place one of these tubes without first controlling the airway, as well as that balloon tamponade kit that you have built or someone in your department has built and putting it at the bedside of the patient. When that patient hits the door, you're gonna start your initial resuscitation. And back in EM Cases 101, we reviewed all of the ins and outs of upper GI bleed management. So you're gonna do all those things, place the two IVs, give blood, give antibiotics if the patient has a history of varices, all of those things that we know are important for upper GI bleed management. And then of course you're gonna get on the phone and call your endoscopist because you're gonna need them to come in to help you manage that patient. At the same time that all of that is being done, you're gathering the equipment for balloon tamponade and having it in the room. The last thing you wanna do is decide that you wanna do this procedure and now you're running around trying to find everything. Get everything, put it in the room and make sure that you're prepared to do the procedure. And then unless you have just reviewed how to do this procedure by watching the videos in your deliberate practice, you're gonna to wanna to watch that video again. So pull up the video on your smartphone, on your computer, and watch all of the steps in that process so you are ready to do the procedure when called upon to do so. And that finally brings us to point number three, which is pulling the trigger to actually place that balloon tamponade system. Classically, this is taught as a Hail Mary procedure. Patient is circling the drain, they're almost on death's door, go ahead and drop the balloon tamponade. It's got a low success rate, but you can't do any worse for the patient. They're almost dead or they are actually dead when you're placing it. And that approach sets us up for failure. Not failure of actually placing the tube, but failure of doing what we want, which is turning the patient around. If we're waiting until the patient is perimorbid, almost dead, then we're gonna have a very low success rate with the procedure. Just like we teach with pericardiocentesis and cricothyroidotomy and transvenous pacemakers, we need to do the procedure a little bit earlier in order to have the outcome that we want. What triggers am I looking for to say I need to place a balloon tamponade? Number one would be recurrent hemodynamic instability. The patient comes in semi-stable, maybe a little bit of a soft blood pressure, a positive shock index. You give them a little bit of blood, they improve, but then their blood pressure drops again. That's a good indication to me that they are having continued bleeding and they're gonna need that balloon tamponade in order to bridge them to the next set of therapies. If you're activating massive transfusion on that patient with upper GI bleed, you probably wanna strongly consider placing that balloon tamponade. Recurrent or active hematemesis, even in the patient who is relatively hemodynamically stable, is gonna be a trigger for me to place that balloon as well because you know that there is ongoing bleeding and once the patient loses their catechols, they are going to crash. If you talk to your consultant and find out that the endoscopy is gonna be delayed, either because you need to transfer the patient or the endoscopist isn't gonna be available for the next hour or two, that's another sign that you might wanna put the balloon in in advance because you know that you're not gonna to get to definitive therapy anytime soon. If we do a good job of anticipating the decompensation before it happens and put the balloon in before they have that massive decompensation, we have the best chance of turning that patient around and bridging them to the next set of therapies that they need in order to fix this GI bleed. In order to really learn the placement well, go check out a set of videos that Jess Mason produced for MRAP. Full disclosure, I do work for MRAP as well, but these videos are available on YouTube even if you don't have a subscription to MRAP. And I think they are the best video resource for learning how to place these tubes 
And she goes through the placement of the Linton, the Blakemore, and the Minnesota tube, the most common tubes that are going to be available to emergency providers. If you spend the time asynchronously from that patient doing deliberate practice, watching the videos, running through how to place these tubes, doing some mental practice, pairing that with creation of a kit for your department that's readily available, and then when the patient comes in, thinking about this right from the start, I may need to move to balloon tamponade placement. Let me get all my equipment to the bedside and be ready to do that procedure. And then finally doing the procedure before it is absolutely 100% necessary, before your hand is forced to do the procedure is gonna give your patient the best chance of a good outcome. Great practical tips on preparation and indications for GI balloon tamponade. Thank you so much, Swami. Next up is ECG Cases himself, Dr. Jesse McLaren, on a common conundrum. So let's say you have a patient who comes in with palpitations and SVT, and you see a bit of ST depression in the lateral leads on the ECG. A very common scenario. Is there any role for getting a troponin in this patient? Let's hear what Dr. McLaren has to say about troponins and SVT. You're seeing a patient for sudden onset palpitations. Their ECG reveals a regular, narrow complex tachycardia without P waves, and you diagnose paroxysmal supraventricular tachycardia. Will you ask for a troponin level and why? What if the patient is older, has chest pain, or if the ECG has diffuse ST depression? If you answered yes, you are not alone. At least half of ED patients with SVT have a troponin level done, but there's no evidence of benefit and there's clear disadvantages. Before ordering any tests, we need to ask ourselves, how will this change management? For patients with paroxysmal SVT, will a troponin change your diagnosis, treatment, prognosis, or disposition? First, the diagnosis of SVT only requires an ECG. Chest pain is a common symptom of SVT, but this is from the rapid heart rate you're seeing on the ECG and very unlikely to be from underlying coronary artery disease. Similarly, the majority of SVT will have associated ST depression, which can simply be rate-related or from an element of demand ischemia, both of which are secondary to the SVT that you're seeing on the ECG. If both chest pain and ST changes resolve after cardioversion, then this confirms the diagnosis and identifies the cause of associated troponin elevations. As a review explained, the pathophysiology of SVT is sufficient to explain an elevated troponin without the presence of underlying CAD. This is owing to increased myocardial oxygen demand and insufficient supply. Secondly, the treatment of SVT is the same regardless of the troponin level. Troponin elevation in SVT is not from a type 1 MI from plaque rupture, which requires revascularization, but rather type 2 from demand ischemia, where the treatment is to restore supply-demand balance, which you've already done by the time the troponin level comes back. And whether you use Valsalva, adenosine, calcium channel blockers, or electrical cardioversion, all of these treat the underlying cause of troponin elevation in SVT, and no further treatment is required. Third, the prognosis of SVT is not affected by troponin level. Positive troponins in patients with SVT correlate with the max heart rate and ST depression during the SVT, but not the presence of underlying CAD or the rest of future MI. In a study of 226 patients with SVT, half had a troponin test, especially older patients, those with risk factors, and those with chest pain. 
but of those with a positive troponin, none had CAD on further testing, while one in the troponin negative group did have CAD, predicted by conventional risk factors. So having a bump in your troponin during an episode of SVT is not a helpful prognosticator. This was confirmed by another study which performed angiography on those with SVT, as it found only 4% of all patients with PSVT turned out to have significant CAD, and traditional markers of myocardial ischemia, such as ST segment depression or troponin elevations, failed to predict the presence of CAD and should therefore not be used in the assessment of patients presenting with an episode of PSVT. Finally, while troponin doesn't change the diagnosis, treatment, or prognosis of SVT, it does lead to unnecessary changes in disposition, but it shouldn't. Troponin elevation is very common in SVT, including a third of adults and a quarter of children. And these cases are associated with a longer length of stay, higher admissions, more investigations, but no difference in outcome. As a study of pediatric SVT explained, such a frequency of detectable troponin suggests that the release of this biomarker is a physiologic expression of paroxysmal tachycardia rather than an abnormality as it may often be regarded. Appreciation of this has the potential to diminish physician anxiety when confronted with the disposition of an otherwise healthy child with SVT. So if you look for troponin in SVT, you will often find it elevated, but this won't help your diagnosis or treatment, it won't improve your prognostication, and it will negatively affect disposition. As a recent commentary on troponin testing in SVT summarized, in a population among which the prevalence of acute coronary occlusion will be very low, an elevated troponin level may prompt downstream testing that will have significant risk with no net benefit. In the ED, a positive troponin test will result in increased length of stay for serial testing or waiting for inpatient telemetry beds, contributing to the safety risks associated with ED crowding. Patients may also be subjected to the risks of hospitalization, antiplatelet therapy, anticoagulation, and coronary angiography. In summary, when it comes to supraventricular tachycardia, just think SVT. S is for symptoms, including chest pain, which does not correlate with CAD. V is for a very fast heart rate, which can depress ST segments and raise troponin, which does not correlate with CAD. And T is for treatment, which is to manage SVT clinically and to reassess the patient and the ECG after cardioversion. Hopefully with this, you can decrease patient anxiety and your own anxiety by managing SVT safely and efficiently without testing troponin. Are you tired of the same old ER work situation? Do you feel like your dreams of being part of a high-performance team have faded? Do you wish that you lived and worked in a city surrounded by endless nature and waterfront? Well, look no further. North Bay Regional Health Centre is a shining star in Ontario's emergency medicine world. This department is on the cutting edge of emergency medicine with an excellent group of physicians and the latest and greatest SIMS educational opportunities and ED technology. Join this great eMERGE at a Level 3 Trauma Centre just three hours north of Toronto. It could be just what you need. Thanks so much, Dr. McLaren. Next up is our geriatric EM educator, Dr. Christina Shenvey. She's going to talk about why you may not want to use the term mechanical fall for the older patient who presents to the ED after a fall, which we see like all the time. You know how in pediatrics they say, oh, kids are not just little adults? 
Well, older adults are not the same as young patients just with more years or with more gray hair. We need to think about them differently. Now, first of all, falls are the number one reason that older adults are admitted for trauma. As we get older, specifically around that 70 to 75-year age mark, the mortality related to falls takes a sharp increase. Falls are not just something that happen out of the blue. They are what's referred to as a geriatric syndrome. A syndrome, in terms of geriatrics, refers to a multifactorial health condition that occurs when we have impairments that have accumulated over time in a lot of different systems. So, for example, why do older patients fall? Well, they may attribute it to that, quote, mechanical stimulus of, oh, I tripped over a rug. I tripped over the curb. I fell getting out of the bus. I tripped over my sandals. So what is it really that caused that older patient to fall? Well, it might be an acute illness. It might be a chronic illness. It might be cognitive impairment. It could be polypharmacy. It could be decreased mobility with decreased joint flexibility because of arthritis or other factors, or maybe sensory deficits, maybe visual or hearing deficits, or it could be postural hypotension. They stand up, get a little lightheaded, and that's enough to cause a fall, even though they don't have syncope. It could be the loss of reflexes, the loss of muscular tone. All of these things, much more than the curb or the carpet, are what cause this patient to fall. So that's what we mean by falls are a geriatric syndrome. They occur and they occur repeatedly, not because of those external mechanical stimuli. They occur because of all the small impairments that happen over time in a lot of different systems. And it's important to recognize all those things that can go into a fall so that we can address them where possible in the ED. For example, if you have a patient who comes in after a fall and maybe has something that they could be discharged home with, like a distal radius fracture, maybe what they really need is vision help. Maybe they need new glasses. Maybe they need fewer medications. Maybe they need to, to look at the polypharmacy. Maybe they don't have good access to transportation, and so they haven't been able to see their PCP or get their vision checked or get shoes that they need or assistive devices that they need. So when we only focus on the outcome of the fall or the injury related to the fall, we're not addressing all the other things that could help them prevent a future fall. Now, I will definitely acknowledge that many of these things are hard to address in the ED. But we can set up programs in advance where we could, for example, refer patients to get the care that they need, or set up home health programs, or set up referrals to home physical therapy. What do we need to do in the ED after a fall? Well, first, do your medical assessment. What happened before the fall? Were they in their usual state of health? Have they had any recent medication changes? Did they feel dizzy, nauseated, uh, short of breath, or have chest pain before the fall? Were there any neuro deficits? We might forget to ask, oh, was this actually a stroke? Did they have a seizure? And then what happened during the fall? Was it ground level? Did they hit a curb? Did they hit the stairs? Did they hit their head on a doorframe? And then what happened afterwards? Was there loss of consciousness? Was it witnessed? Do we really know how long they were down for? Did they have altered mental status afterwards? 
Did they have neurologic deficits or postictal symptoms afterwards? Were they vomiting? Were they able to ambulate? How long did it take for them to return to baseline? So think about that before, during, and after framework for how you can assess a fall. And then things that we can act on in the ED, we should assess for and act on. For example, are there any dysrhythmias that may have contributed to this fall or any electrolyte disorders or dehydration? For all the times that we may attribute falls or altered mental status to a UTI, I feel like even more often it's things like dehydration. Are they orthostatic? Do they get lightheaded when they stand up? Are there new medications that we need to potentially either go down on the dose or deprescribe altogether? So some things we can act on in the ED, but then many things that are underlying that fall syndrome, we really need to refer the patient to outpatient care for. If it's their arthritis, their neuropathy, their cognitive impairment, maybe Parkinson's or a movement disorder, or their vision impairment or dementia. The best type of fall is the one that never happens. So whatever we can do in the ED to prevent future falls is important. And first of all, this just comes down to asking, what is their fall's history? Was this the first fall? Was this a one-off event? Or have they fallen multiple times? The way I usually phrase it is how many times have you fallen in the last three months? You can do a quick gait test, and there are lots of standardized, validated tests that you can do out there, but really just having the patient stand up and walk and watching them. Do they need to hold on to things for help? Do they have assistive devices, or do they need a cane or a walker? You can evaluate in the ED for acute causes or changes that may have precipitated this fall, labs and EKG, things like that, and then reviewing their home meds for any recent changes. The other thing we can do in the ED, and you can do this while you do your gait testing potentially, is check for orthostasis. Most importantly, check for symptoms of orthostasis, but then check orthostatic vital signs to see, okay, is their blood pressure dropping 40 points when they stand up? The other thing we can do in the ED that can prevent future visits for falls is have patients seen by physical or occupational therapy. They can do a more thorough assessment and see, does the patient need home PT, outpatient PT, or do they need an assistive device to go home with today? Or are they completely unsafe to go home and need to be admitted? The other things we can do are refer the patient to their primary care physician, or if you have it, a geriatrics or falls clinic for further, more detailed assessment. You can also raise the concern with the patient or their family. Hey, I'm concerned. You've fallen three or four times in the last few months. I think there may be things that should be looked at more carefully to help prevent future falls. This might be things in the home, and some places have county-based resources that will visit the home, look at it holistically, or it may be things like looking at your medications list more carefully. I'd like you to talk with your primary care doctor about that. To summarize, Falls are important for older patients. They're the leading cause for trauma-related admissions and mortality for older adults. And falls are multifactorial. They're a geriatric syndrome. Avoid anchoring to what the patient tells you. Patients will try to externalize it. They'll say their falls were because of that carpet, that stair. Avoid externalizing and really look at what is the reason that this patient fell today and what are their long-term or underlying falls risks. And then do your ED falls assessment. Look at before, during, and after the fall and what things may have chronically or acutely precipitated this fall. The problem with saying mechanical fall is it means different things to different people. 
and it minimizes the underlying causes that really contribute to falls. When we say mechanical fall, we're externalizing the cause of the fall to something mechanical, when really there's so much more that goes into it. Instead of mechanical fall, you might say, for example, non-sinkable fall or ground level fall. The non-sinkable part is key because that's a different pathway. If they had syncope and fell or a seizure and fell, that's going to be a very different workup. So non-sinkable fall from standing is a good exchange for mechanical fall. Or maybe you'll say multifactorial, non-sinkable fall from standing. Or if you want to get really fancy, non-sinkable fall from standing with an underlying syndrome of increased falls risk or frailty. Thank you for listening, and hopefully this will help you think a little bit differently about your geriatric falls in the future. In case you haven't heard yet, the next online virtual EM Cases Summit is slotted for February 2nd to 4th, 2013. The best EM Cases speakers from around the world, state-of-the-art procedural demos, panel discussions, rural EM seminars, prize giveaways, fully EM accredited, and a great opportunity to interact with your colleagues from around the world. And again, we're offering at least 100 free tickets for those who practice in resource-challenged countries. If you've been listening to EM Cases for free for a while now, think about supporting us by attending the conference so that we can continue to provide free open access podcasts, blogs, email blasts, videos for years to come. Tickets go on sale November 2nd. Check emcasesummit.com for more details. Next up, we have a Rural EM Cases segment with Noor Khatib and Jonathan Wallace. And this time it's going to be on Vertical Vertigo. Hi, everyone. It's Dr. Noor Khatib with you again for another Rural Quick Hit. We're trying something new at EM Cases, and today I'll be interviewing Dr. Jonathan Wallace, the creator of rnrrounds.ca, letters rnrrounds.ca, which is a podcast focused on emergency medicine cases from rural remote Canadian departments. Today's case is quite the tough one. We'll be talking about vertical vertigo in a resource-limited setting. A big welcome to Dr. Jonathan Wallace from rural Alberta. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan. Thanks for inviting me to Rural Quick Hits, Noor. Fantastic. Tell us about your case. So I was working in what I like to call Fort St. Nowhere, which is a made-up, prototypical, rural, remote Canadian hospital. It's GP-run. There are few to no specialists within an hour's drive of the facility. Investigations on-site include plain x-rays and point-of-care ultrasound, but that's about it. So I'm working the evening shift. A 60-year-old male presents at about 8 p.m., and he has a 12-hour history of generalized lightheadedness with brief episodes of vertical vertigo throughout the day, as well as a posterior left-sided headache. So the story is he was sitting at rest in the morning. He looked up, hyperextending his neck, and he had this instant onset of headache and vertical vertigo sensation. And it lasted for about 15 seconds before he laid down, and that seemed to make it resolve. Now, the rest of the day, he spent laying down with this lightheadedness sensation and nausea, but no vomiting. It was positional, and every time he moved, the sensation came back, and it was quite severe. Now, at this point, it's 12 hours later, it's the evening, he's in the waiting room, and it seems to be subsiding while he's waiting. So, horizontal vertigo and nystagmus, I am comfortable managing, but vertical vertigo is something that scares me. Just to clarify, what exactly do you mean by vertical vertigo? I don't normally ask patients which way the room is spinning. 
Yeah, so where horizontal vertigo is caused by problems in the lateral semicircular canal and can be described like the person is atop, spinning inside the room, in this case, the patient felt as though he was tumbling backwards. He actually said that he was looking at a fireplace on the wall and had the sensation that the fireplace kept going up and up and up that wall. Okay, that makes sense. So what are your concerns at this point? So my first concern is a posterior stroke, but I'm also worried about central causes with both the vertical rotation and secondly, this, this position invoked posterior headache. There's no CT available in this resource limited site. Okay, wow, tough case, especially in a resource limited setting. Now, it's important to know the clinical differences between peripheral and central vertigo. For this, I'll refer the listeners to episode 45 with Dr. Stuart Swadron for a great review. Now, Jonathan, how did you assess this patient? Well, I went back to basics. So I did my physical examination, looking at the cranial nerves and the limbs and the cerebellar testing. And specifically, there was no detection of nystagmus. He was able to sit upright with mild lightheadedness and some discomfort, but no subjective vertigo at this time. Otherwise, his physical examination was normal. I thought about doing a Hintz exam, but it wasn't applicable in this case because his vertigo had resolved at the time of my assessment. I also performed a Dix-Hallpike exam and discovered there was mild subjective vertigo on the right side testing, but again, no nystagmus seen. So you bring up a good point. So emergency physicians are notoriously bad at doing the HINTS exam. Some research suggests that it is being used inappropriately about 97% of the time. So now based on your assessment, how did you proceed? So I'm far less worried after my physical exam with a subjectively positive Dix-Hallpike, but I'm still worried about the atypical vertical rotation and the posterior headache and underlying constant lightheadedness that he's reporting. So I call neurology for advice. Do they want to examine this person? Do they want to take him to the city for imaging? Do they want me to order any blood tests before I go ahead and draw anything? So the neurologist listens to the story and diagnoses this over the phone as BPV of the posterior canal. She is not worried about stroke because the vertigo sensation is so short-lived. And of course, there's also the absence of other neurological findings. This is not consistent with ischemia, in her opinion. It's very consistent with BPV, especially with the initial positional trigger. So at this point, she feels no imaging is indicated and it is safe to discharge this patient into the care of his spouse with instructions to return if episodes become longer in duration or there are new neurological findings. Oh, wow. So that's super for the patient, and you saved him some unnecessary radiation and a trip to another city. Good take-home points. Non-horizontal vertigo could be BPV affecting either the anterior or posterior canals and can still be benign. Exactly. Benign positional vertigo in those two canals can apparently lead to a sensation of rotation in either an upward and downward tumbling sensation or a rotational cartwheeling sensation. Great case, Jonathan. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Dr. Katib and Dr. Wallace. Just one word of caution from this case is that a posterior circulation TIA can mimic BPV. So it could be that a patient has transient vertigo that just happens to occur after moving their head. Now, if the vertigo is triggered many, many times over by movement of the head and completely resolves in between episodes and never occurs at rest, well, that's BPV. But a single transient episode of vertigo that lasts, say, a few minutes that happens to have occurred after head movement, 
I think still needs a TIA workup, including CT head, neck vessel imaging, ECG, etc. All right, just after this short ad, we've got the amazing educator speaker, EM thought leader from New York, Ruben Strayer, who's going to share with us his thoughts on video-assisted flexible endoscopic intubation, or VAFI, for the patient with an anatomically challenging airway. This is really great cutting-edge stuff. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Things in emergency medicine have really been under strain and change for the last several months. Your old scheduling templates just don't cut it. Through all of this, Metricade has been agile and responsive. Metricade actively participates in the day-to-day reactions to COVID on the workforce. They help modify schedules on the fly, adjusting hours of shifts and daily rosters, and making the most of limited resources. By taking over a lot of the new and complicated administrative burden on managing our schedules during the pandemic, they've shown that they are more than just a scheduling system. They've become true partners in staff health safety and satisfaction. Metricade is ready to bring you on board anytime, and I'm confident they'll be able to help us through whatever uncertainty lies ahead. The airway is adapted for protection. There are static defenses. The opening to the airway is tucked way back to the most protected reaches of the skull. And active defenses. We have evolved powerful airway protective reflexes. And the twin challenges of concealed anatomy and defensive reflexes have confounded airway operators since the advent of endotracheal intubation. The laryngeal inlet, buried at the base of the tongue and shielded by the epiglottis, is conventionally exposed by a traditional laryngoscope, which displaces the tongue and epiglottis, establishing a direct line of sight to the vocal cords and proximal trachea. This procedure is greatly hindered by the gag and cough reflexes, which may be mitigated with local anesthesia or abolished with pharmacologic paralysis, which unfortunately also abolishes spontaneous ventilation. To overcome difficult anatomy, anesthesiologists often use a flexible endoscope, frequently referred to as a fiber-optic bronchoscope, although the devices are no longer fiber-optic and we're not doing bronchoscopy, but Anesthetists will use a flexible scope to carefully navigate around the nasal and oral obstacles into the larynx of an awake, breathing patient after meticulous application of local anesthesia. This is called topicalized awake intubation or awake tracheal intubation, and it preserves spontaneous ventilation and therefore offers unequaled safety. However, Topicalized awake has been poorly adopted by emergency clinicians because it requires time, patient cooperation, a skill set that is unevenly taught, and fragile, expensive equipment that must be sterilized after each use. The arrival of video laryngoscopy in the early 2000s offered clinicians a crucial tool to manage the difficult airway. The first device to gain widespread use was the GlideScope, which simultaneously introduced two technologies— Laryngoscope blades fitted with a camera that projects wide views of the larynx onto a screen, as well as hyperangulated blade geometry featuring a much steeper curve designed not to displace but rather advance around the tongue. Adding video to laryngoscopy, putting a camera on the blade, was a transformational advance, but hyperangulated geometry is a comparatively marginal innovation which 
provides easy access to an exceptional view in exchange for more difficult delivery of the endotracheal tube. Airway management continues to be advanced by improvements in several key devices. The most popular video platforms now feature hot swappable blades, so that, for example, the operator may switch from a standard geometry video blade to a hyperangulated blade in the middle of an intubation procedure. And single-use disposable flexible endoscopes are now widely available, which brings this very powerful airway tool within reach of many emergency departments. These advances introduce airway management options that are not yet widely utilized. One particularly powerful example is the use of a flexible endoscope to facilitate tube delivery after the larynx has been exposed using a video laryngoscope. This two-operator technique has been called a dynamic stylet or a smart bougie. I call it video-assisted flexible endoscopic intubation, VAFI. To do VAFI, you start by pre-oxygenating and hemodynamically optimizing the patient as time and physiology allow, as usual. The video laryngoscope operator stands at the head of the bed behind the patient's left shoulder, and the flexible endoscope operator stands at the head of the bed behind the patient's head, just to the right of the VL operator. The patient should be positioned with torso inclination, as usual, head of bed raised 15 to 45 degrees, and the screens of both devices are positioned over the patient's bed in front of the operators. The major VL manufacturers now have technology to allow a single screen to present the output from two devices in a split screen or picture-in-picture format. But there is no problem positioning two separate screens, usually one on each side of the patient. VAFI can be used with any pharmacologic approach. RSI, ketamine only, or fully topicalized awake. Once induced, the VL operator performs laryngoscopy as usual to obtain an adequate view, or if difficult anatomy prevents an adequate view, you obtain the best possible view. Then the VL operator, maintaining the laryngoscope position with their left hand, readies suction in right hand in preparation for flexible endoscopy. Now the flexible endoscopy operator looks in the mouth places the endoscope in the patient's mouth and advances the endoscope to the end of the VL blade under direct visualization looking in the mouth. Then the endoscope operator looks at the VL screen to guide the endoscope to the vocal cords and advances the scope through the cords, usually looking at the VL screen, but occasionally, if really difficult anatomy, the VL screen view may be inadequate, in which case the scope can be guided to and through the cords while looking at the flexible endoscope screen. Once the scope is through the cords, the flex endo operator looks at the endoscope screen to advance the scope down. And finally, the endoscopist or an assistant railroads the preloaded endotracheal tube to just above the carina, at which point the endoscope is removed, the endotracheal tube is attached to ventilation with capnography to confirm placement. VAFI is a remarkably simple technique and it's also remarkably powerful, especially when used with hyperangulated video laryngoscopy, because it leverages the strengths of one device against the weaknesses of the other. HAVL, hyperangulated video laryngoscopy, provides the best view of the glottis but frustrates tube delivery, whereas driving a flexible endoscope to the glottis is much harder than cannulating the cords once the glottis is in view. In VAFI, the laryngoscope clears a path through the mouth for the endoscope so that the endoscope can be manually inserted directly to the glottic inlet. 
This overcomes the usual challenges in flexible endoscopy, which are navigating the nose and nasopharynx, or in an oral approach, staying midline while you steer down the tongue and around the other oral structures. Skills-wise, VAFI is more like using a bougie than performing a conventional flexible endoscopic intubation. And unlike traditional topicalized awake flexible endoscopy, VAFI can be performed very rapidly, which allows the procedure to be incorporated into an RSI-based strategy or rescue an RSI that has failed. The primary drawback of VAFI is that it requires two operators, one to perform video laryngoscopy and one to advance the flexible endoscope. However, both operators need not be physicians. And in fact, one operator can perform VAFI by first completing laryngoscopy and then handing off the VL to an assistant positioned to the operator's left behind the patient so that the primary operator is then free to finish the procedure with a flexible endoscope. VAFI, of course, requires that both VL and flexible endoscope devices are available and ready, which is a barrier in some departments. However, the emergence of single-use disposable VL blades and single-use disposable endoscopes should allow more and more departments to access the tools you need for this technique. So video-assisted flexible endoscopic intubation, VAFI, is a powerful airway technique that will allow relatively straightforward intubation of patients with very difficult anatomy by taking advantage of the strengths of video laryngoscopy and flexible endoscopy while diminishing their drawbacks. It can be incorporated into a breathing intubation approach, like topicalized awake or ketamine only, but can also be performed quickly enough to be used with paralysis and rapid sequence intubation. Especially when combined with hyperangulated geometry blades, VAFI is a fantastic strategy to manage patients where you're very concerned about difficult anatomy or to rescue a case where video has failed, particularly when the view of the glottis is adequate and the challenge is tube delivery. So wrapping up this EM case's quick hits, we've learned some practical tips about GI balloon tamponade from Swami, particularly how to prepare in advance and when to pull the trigger on your Linton or Minnesota or Blakemore or what have you. We learned from Dr. McLaren that troponin for patients with run-of-the-mill SVT in the ED is rarely useful, while ordering a troponin on all these patients just prolongs length of stay and may be harmful with downstream interventions. Our geriatric EM expert, Dr. Shenvi, beautifully explained why we should abandon the term mechanical fall in older patients and think more carefully about the underlying cause of the fall and how we can prevent the next fall. Our rural EM case taught me that vertical vertigo can be peripheral or central, and Dr. Strayer gave us a great argument for considering video-assisted flexible endoscopic intubation, or VAFI, in those anatomically challenging patients, which I'm hoping we can flesh out with a professionally produced video for the EM Cases Summit in February. All right, so next month, we have the world-renowned EM speaker, Dr. David Carr of Carr's Cases, give us his approach to syncope. And it's packed with practical bedside pearls and pitfalls. We had a great conversation. And one last piece of exciting news. By this fall, we'll have all the written summaries of the main episode podcast, which you can find easily on the EM Cases website, translated meticulously into French. So if your first language is French... You'll definitely want to check out our huge library of EM Cases show notes on the website. So until next time, take it easy.